Hey, product lovers out there. Welcome to another episode of Product Love. Today we have Nir, author of Hooked. Nir, thanks for joining me today. Can we start by giving us, the people who don't know you, a little bit of your background? Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the show. First of all, it's great to be here. And thanks for the listeners for tuning in. So my name is Nir Ayal. And uh, most recently, I wrote the book Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And I study how different products change our behavior. And my goal here is to help all sorts of product makers build the kind of products that people want to use. My mission here behind what I do for a living is to help all those product makers that are building the kind of products and services that people want to use, but for lack of good product design, don't use. And, and so I know how frustrating that is. I've started two companies. I know how hard it is to build the kind of products people want to use. So I've really dedicated my life for the past several years to really figuring out what it is about the world's most habit-forming products, the most engaging products out there, you know, the usual suspects like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack. And what I really want to do is to try and identify what are the patterns behind how these products are built that the rest of us can learn from and also integrate into our own products so that we can build the kind of healthy habits to help people live better lives? That's awesome. So what drove you to write Hooked? So I, uh, my last company is at the intersection of gaming and advertising, and I uh, will admit to you that those two industries are both reliant on mind control. And so, you know, those advertisers don't spend all that money for their health, and gaming companies know exactly what gets you to click and what makes you tick better than you understand yourself. And so I really became fascinated by this deeper psychology of, you know, why some products succeed and, and are able to change people's behavior and create these habits while others flop. And so that question kind of uh, nagged at me. And so at, when my last company was acquired and I had some time on my hands, before I started my next venture, I really wanted to understand the psychology behind how habits work. And so uh, I spent a lot of time in the Stanford Library researching a lot of very boring academic papers. I also talked to a lot of the people who, who wrote those papers. And I also talked to a lot of folks who were building the technologies that I mentioned earlier, you know, folks from Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack and a number of these different companies. And so I interviewed them to write on my blog what I was learning. And then at some point, a professor of mine from Stanford, who I'd, I'd known when I was a student there, called me up and said, look, I really like your blog. You know, what do you think about teaching a class together? And so I created this curriculum, which was all about behavioral design and how different products are designed to change behavior. And that became a class that we taught for several years. And then I moved over to the design school where I taught there for a number of years. And now I, am, uh, I, I consult and I mostly teach and, and continue to write. So let's talk a little bit about one of your blog posts. You wrote about humans making terrible life choices. You know, a lot of people, you know, think humans are the smartest creatures on the planet. Well, you know, maybe Douglas Adams said we were third behind dolphins and mice, but... Right. Thanks for the fish. Not really sure you had consensus there. But, you know, humans, terrible life choices. Can you give us the details behind that and, and why we don't optimize for happiness? Right. So it's, it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek title. I, I you know, obviously, I, I do believe that humans are the most intelligent creature on Earth by far. We're also the most adaptable, which is what makes us such a special species. But that being said, there, you know, in order to adapt to our environment, we also have to make sure we accurately represent what's going on in reality, you know, like what, what's really happening. And so I did this blog post series along with uh, my friend Lakshmi, where we looked at these different what are called heuristics. Heuristics are these behavioral shortcuts that our brain takes to kind of get to the best answer w without a lot of conscious thought. It's kind of done 
you know, in a, there's this dichotomy of system one versus system two thinking that Daniel Kahneman talks about. So a lot of these heuristics are these shortcuts that help us do things without a lot of thought. And so I went through this, we, you know, we're going through step by step a number of these different heuristics and these cognitive biases that we have to kind of explain how these biases work. And most importantly, what we can do to counteract a lot of these biases. So, you know, the last article we did that you maybe read was where we do have this comparison bias, where we like to compare things based on what seems like very quantifiable differences. So the, the example that we give in the article is, you know, the difference between a 40-inch TV and a 45-inch TV. And so when we utilize this, what's called a distinction bias, that small quantitative difference can seem like a big deal, but in actuality, when we, you know, when we actually experience the, the, the outcome of our decision, it turns out it makes almost no difference whatsoever. When it comes to actually enjoying an experience more or less, these small quantifiable differences that many times we are sold and convinced makes a difference very rarely do. So, you know, when you're buying a, a new speaker system or, you know, you're a new computer and it's got more megahertz or gigabytes or whatever, a lot of times these small quantitative differences, or even, you know, when you think about how much happier you would be if you had a, an increase in salary or if your house had more square foot, quantitatively, we're much better at, at seeing a difference there. Whereas what really matters are the qualitative differences. Things like, you know, how much time do you spend in traffic actually can have a much bigger impact on your happiness than how many square feet of a house you have or even how much salary you make. So why don't we do more to optimize for happiness? Why do we look at these quantitative things that might not matter that much as opposed to thinking more about things like our commute? A lot of it is because of uh, what's called the availability heuristic, which is another cognitive biases, where we tend to look at the information that's most easily available to us and that is repeated more often. So part of it is the fact that you know it's very easy to quantify the difference between a 40-inch TV and a 42-inch TV, or you know making $75,000 or making $78,000. We can put that down and we can see the difference. However, it's very difficult to see the difference between how much happier you would be with a 15-minute commute versus a 30-minute commute. Very interesting. So <laughs> I want to talk next a little bit about Q-tips, right? Very <laughs> important issue for tech companies, but <laughs> you do write about Q-tips as it relates to the topic of tech companies, specifically engagement and, and possibly addiction. So let's chat a little bit about Q-tips or at least how the story around them is important to product engagement and can cause addiction. Yeah, so when you talk about it in the in the conversation of Q-tips, that's really freaking boring. <laughs> but if we couch it in the, in, into the the frame of why I bring up this metaphor I use that I call the the Q-tip effect, it has to do with this I think very interesting and very timely question around addiction and specifically addiction to all sorts of tech products. You know this. This word gets tossed around a lot these days, and I think you know, from a product developer standpoint, we have to be cautious about how we apply many of these behavioral design techniques, many of which I, I preach in my book to be used for good. But you know, many times these same techniques can be used for nefarious purposes. And one of the criticisms of many tech companies today is that they're making products that get people addicted. And so I really wanted to talk about this topic of addiction in a way that is more nuance than I think what the popular conversation is. I think, you know, when people use the word addictive, you know, it, it's gotten into the vernacular in a way that has totally disassociated it from its actual meaning. Just to give you an example, my, my wife got a box from DSW Shoe Company, and the side of the box says, caution, addictive contents inside. 
I mean, we use this word addiction all over the place, and, and I get that. Uh, you know, a word sometimes takes on new meanings. But when we talk about the harmful effects of addiction, you know, it's it's it, much of the conversation out there is just complete horse crap because people don't know what they're really talking about when they talk about addiction. Addiction has a very specific definition, and that is a dependency, a compulsive dependency on a behavior or substance that harms the user. So it has to be something that even when you want to stop doing, you can't stop doing, and it causes you harm. So it's a dependency that also causes harm. It's not good enough for it to just be a dependency, right? I can say I'm dependent on my car or I'm dependent on my wife, but I'm not necessarily, those things aren't causing me harm per se. So it's only an addiction if it also causes harm. And so then it brings us to this next question of how, wh- why do people do this? Why do people go overboard with a product or service? Because in the natural course of things, if you think about it, you know, if a product or service hurts you, most people stop using it, right? Maybe not at, one, at the beginning, right? So you can fool anybody once. If it's, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. So most people, when it's the second time, when they interact with a product or service and it, they don't like it, it harms them in some way, they stop. And by the way, this even goes for substances. You know, if you think about it, there is no substance on the face of the earth, even the most addictive substances you can think of, like heroin, there is no substance that you can put into a human being and that everybody will get addicted to. It just doesn't work that way. In fact, millions of people are exposed to opiates when they go to the hospital because they broke their arm or something else and they need some kind of pain relief. But very, very few people are actually become addicted to those substances. And the same goes with experiences, not just substance addictions, but also behavioral addictions. You know, we've seen over the past several decades that the prevalence of online gambling, I'm sorry, that gambling, not just online gambling, but also casino gambling has expanded dramatically. Many more states have access to to gambling than before. And yet we haven't seen a dramatic rise in the number of people who are actually addicted to gambling per se. As a percentage of the population, it holds pretty steady. And so what we are seeing is that addiction is just more complicated than saying, ooh, that product is addictive. And so bringing all this back in a long-winded way back to the Q-tip, I call this the Q-tip effect, that there are some people that despite the negative consequences of, of a product or service can't stop. And they can't stop because the solution becomes the problem and the problem becomes the solution. And so that continues this, this loop. And the reason I call it the Q-tip effect is because it turns out that people can get addicted to literally anything. One of those things that a surprising number of people actually do get addicted to is Q-tips. Many people get, get addicted to these Q-tips. If you go online and type in Q-tip addiction, you will find you know, su- a surprising number of forums and conversations about people who are really struggling with putting away these Q-tips. And so the deeper lesson here is that it's not a product per se that is addictive. It's the interaction between the product and the person. And so this has some implications for how we design our products or services. And specifically, what I do is I bring companies to task and say, look, if you know that you are creating addicts, even though that's a small percentage of population, even though that's you know single-digit percentages of your user base if you're making a product like Facebook or Snapchat or whatever the case might be, if you know you have an ethical responsibility to do something and help these folks. And so that's, that's kind of the ethical charge I wanted to put out there to companies that are building products that are potentially things that people can get addicted to, that they have a responsibility to that small percentage of users to do something for them and help them and, and see if they can help them use the products less. Now, many companies can't. So for example, you know, Las Vegas casinos, they can't do this because their business model would crumble. They would go out of business if they 
try to help people who are actually addicted. But for the vast majority of products out there, that's not the case. That you know, Nothing bad would happen to Facebook if they sent out an email to folks who are using Facebook to a very, you know, spending way too much time on site, you know, the 1% to 5% of users who are spending way too much time online, the platform would actually get better if they help those folks. And so that's what I want these companies to do is if they know who the addicts are, and they do, they have personal identifiable information on how much you use the product, I think they have an ethical responsibility to help those folks. But that also means, and the reason I think this is so important, is that for the rest of us, right, for the people who are not actually addicted, you know, the 95 to 99% of the population, the reason this is so important to know is because this becomes now a personal responsibility thing. That if you are actually addicted, and it really is mind control in this respect, that you can't stop even if you want to, first of all, there are other things going on, right? There is no such thing as an addict without a story. There's always somebody, there's there's something that they are escaping, which is why all addicts do what they do. It's to disassociate it's to escape from an uncomfortable reality and so you know first the thing is that they need help they need many times professional assistance and then two for everybody else who just you know uses the word addicted to mean oh i like it a lot it's hard to stop well then you know it doesn't really count <laughs> that in in your in your case if you wait for the companies like facebook and youtube to make their products you know things you don't want to interact with or to make their products worse so that you'll stop using them as much you know, don't hold your breath because you're going to suffocate. So in that respect, it really does become a personal responsibility issue. So you talk about companies having an ethical obligation in how they design their products to avoid manipulating the masses. When you talk to them, how do you advise them to think about this? Yeah, so there's, um, there's a big difference, I think, between persuasion and coercion. Both are forms of manipulation. And by the way, you know, manipulation is used as a term that, that denotes something negative, However, it doesn't necessarily have to be negative. The, the word itself does not necessarily carry a negative connotation per the definition. But, and, and the evidence for that is, look, we all like to be manipulated. If you think about it, we pay for the privilege. When you go to see a movie, you know that that flickering image isn't real, right? It's just light directed in, into your eyeball in such a way that, that tricks your brain to thinking that there's people up there on the screen. And even those people are just actors who are saying lines. So clearly it's a big fat lie, right? It's manipulating your emotions and we pay for the privilege. We love it. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. So, you know, people do like to be manipulated, but the difference is, is it something that is in their interest that they want to do or something against their interest that they don't want to do? And so that's the difference between persuasion and coercion. Persuasion is helping people do things they want to do, and coercion is getting people to do things they don't want to do. The nice thing is that there's a very easy test to know the difference, and that test is called the regret test. And the regret test is this very simple kind of question that we can ask when we are designing these products and services and ask ourselves, you know, this particular design pattern, this particular experience, is this something that after the user interacts with, with our product, would they regret it? Would they regret it? And I think that singular question can do a tremendous amount of good in helping us build better and more ethical products. And it is frankly much better for business. And, and I want to emphasize here that these practices these coercive practices are not exclusive to web companies. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story here. You know, very recently, I tried to cancel my subscription to the Wall Street Journal. I had a print subscription to the Wall Street Journal and I wanted to cancel it. 
And the Wall Street Journal deploys a technique, and I want to call them to task here. This technique is a dark pattern called the Roach Motel. And the Roach Motel is a technique where it's very easy to get in and impossible to get out. And so here's what happened. You know, I signed up, free, you know, get your free subscription to the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, it's very easy to sign up. Just give us you know, a little bit of information and boom, you're subscribed. But if you want to cancel, oh my God, I spent half an hour on the phone. You can't email, right? You, there's no way to do that. There's no customer support that you can do over email. You have to call a number between the hours of nine to five. It's incredibly inconvenient. And then there's this sales guy who tries to convince you for 30 minutes to not cancel the subscription. That's an evil technique. If I had known that it would have been that hard to cancel, I would not have subscribed. I regretted that interaction with that company. Uh, and so I won't do it again. And so that's, that's one example. And there, of course, there's all kinds of other techniques. You know, I'm sure many, many people listening have seen you know, false advertising and we've seen you know, putting things into people's baskets, uh, lots of dark patterns that companies use. The good news is that for the most part, that the market tends to take care of, of these infractions pretty severely. That in this day and age of, of social media, if a company does something crappy to you that you regret, just like I'm telling you right now about what the Wall Street Journal did to me, then what tends to happen is that message gets amplified. And for the most part, these companies stop doing these unethical practices. Not always, but for the most part, these companies are shamed into changing their ways. Hmm. That's very interesting. So, you know, to, to summarize a little bit about that, you know, persuasion, good, coercion, bad. There's that fine line, regret test as a mechanism to uh, get people thinking about what side of that line they're on and then try to stay away from, you know, those uh, questionable business practices that in the long term aren't going to bring about customer happiness and, and that message will spread. Right, right. And we, and we see that, by the way, right now, I think with the current debate around Facebook, is you know even with a product that I, I profile a lot in my book Hooked for a product that is superbly designed to be habit forming, when the product breaks the hook, and in the case of Facebook, you know what's happening with Facebook these days is that the reward phase of the hook, that critical third step of the hook, is no longer rewarding. And what's happening is that people are no longer finding the product good for what they found it originally fun to, to use. So, you know, in the beginning when you tried Facebook, it was great because you had your close network of friends and you could see what was happening with them. And it was, it was a great way to stay in touch. But now that Facebook has become this, you know, mess of crap and ads and, and political, you know, ranting, it's not as interesting anymore. It doesn't serve the purpose of why we use the product. And so, so the, you know, they are having a crisis moment right now that I think in the next year or so is going to get worse as people start to figure out, you know what, I regret using this product. It is not serving me anymore. And for the vast majority of people, they quit. They stop using it or they dial back. So let's talk a little bit about that. You've written about how to, you know, take back your time, how to regain your productivity, uh, and quite possibly in some cases your sanity. Can you talk to me about techniques you've written about there? Sure. So I'm actually writing on uh, my next book now, which is called Indistractable. So the reason I'm writing this book is because when I wrote Hooked, uh, a few things happened. One, I would get this question a lot for when I gave public talks about my book around, hey, you know, I, it, it's great that you're teaching me how to build habit-forming products, but how do I dial back? How do I stop uh, myself from overusing these products, which are sometimes habit-forming? And, and I think that's a great question to ask because, you know, to be very clear, even though I use Twitter and Facebook and Slack and Instagram in my book, I didn't build those companies. And in fact, they're case studies for how to 
build your product to build healthy habits like they build their habits, right? So that was really my intent. I, I, you know, I've never been paid by Facebook. I've never worked for Google. And, and I, you know, they, they were doing this stuff way before I put them in my book. But I am just as much of an advocate for people you know, stopping the use of these products where they don't serve them. And so the way we do that is we have to understand the deeper psychology of how these products work. So in my book, I talk about this hook, this four-step process of a trigger, action, reward, investment that companies can use to build what I want them to build, which is healthy habits, right? The kind of habits that help people exercise more and connect with friends and family and be more productive at work. And there, there are tons of examples of companies, many of which I've invested in, that use the hook to help people live better lives. But we can also use that deeper understanding to try and put these bad habits in their place, to try and you know, make sure that we don't go overboard with these technologies. And what I learned was, you know, originally when I started writing this book, I wanted to write a book about, you see, these tech companies are all addicting us and they're evil and you know, they, they, it's their fault. And then you know, it became very difficult to write that book because I just didn't think that was true anymore. Because what I started realizing is that you know, distraction, number one, is not new that Socrates and Plato talk about the nature of acrasia. 2,500 years ago, they were discussing this tendency that human beings have to do things against their better interests. You know, distraction is not a new problem. And, and so that really became what the book is about. It's not just about one particular technology because look, you know, there has always been some technology that distracts us. Before Facebook and YouTube, it was television was going to turn us all into couch potatoes. And radio was supposed to melt people's brains. And believe it or not, even novels. I mean, there was a serious hysteria around novels and, and how terrible that was that people should be reading literature. Like that was, that was a terrible thing, especially for women. That was the worst because they would become lascivious if they read novels. So this is nothing new. What's not new is that we will f- always find some form of distraction unless we know how to deal with it. And so some of the methods to deal with distraction, first and foremost, is to deal with those inner demons. The fact is, if, you know, if Mark Zuckerberg tomorrow were to shut down Facebook and say to the world, look, I have enough money, I'm good, let's go ahead and shut this Facebook thing down, it's not like people tomorrow would start reading Shakespeare and Chaucer in their free time, right? They would look for something else to distract themselves. And so if we're going to really deal with distraction and not just make it about this tech or that tech, then we have to look at the deeper side of why we're looking for escape. And what we tend to find is that, th- that these internal triggers are incredibly important, that our brain is built for distraction. So if, if you don't deal with whatever it is you're trying to escape, right? Your, your spouse is annoying you. Your kids are too loud and, and, and won't give you any peace and quiet. Your job is too stressful and you're looking for escape. You're dealing with money troubles or whatever else is going on with your life. If you can't figure out a way to deal with those things in a healthy manner and not jump to some kind of escape with one thing or another, then that's the fundamental problem you have to focus on first. And so there's a bunch of things we can do. And there's a bunch of things I will put in my book, which I don't have time to discuss now, but there's a lot of things that we can do to to be more mindful around how we deal with this discomfort. But fundamentally, distraction starts from within. I mean, I'll give you one quick story. I I did a digital detox and I I went totally analog and I put everything away and I didn't even use my iPhone. I got this old school feature phone that didn't have any apps or anything on it. And then I sat down to, to do some writing and then I noticed, oh, you know, wow, I, I, I've got these books behind me that I should really start looking at. Maybe I should read just one or two things there. And, you know, then I started daydreaming and then I started thinking about this and that. And I, I still got distracted because I wasn't figuring out a healthy way to cope with the difficulty, the discomfort 
of writing, of how hard it is for me to write. And so fundamentally, I had to learn healthier ways to deal with discomfort. So that's, that's the real meat and potatoes, is that we have to learn how to deal with discomfort at large, not just with any one technology. But then there's some really practical stuff you can do. So for example, removing external triggers. This is, this is an easy one. You know, about two-thirds of smartphone owners never change their notification settings. That's nuts, right? We have no right to complain about apps bothering us if you haven't changed your goddamn notification settings so that they're not buzzing you all day long. So take 10 minutes and disable those stupid notifications for apps that don't have the right to bother you all day. Another quick hit. You know, many times people say to me, you know, technology is so distracting, I can't get anything done. And I say, oh, that's a really good point. Let me see your calendar. Can I see your calendar app to see what you plan to get done? They take out their phone, they show me their calendar, and it's blank. It's white. They've got nothing planned. So you cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So the solution there is that if you really want to know what traction is in your life, what you want to be doing, you have to plan for it. You know, in this day and age, if you don't plan your time, somebody else will, right? It's going to be YouTube. It's going to be Netflix. It's going to be your boss. It's going to be your kids. Something is going to eat up that time unless you put down for every minute of the day what you plan to be doing instead. So you've got to do that. You've got to plan out your day. Then there are things that we can do in terms of blocking out distractions so that we don't succumb to it. Even when we feel those internal triggers and we seek an escape, you know, there's lots of things we can do. Like, for example, take a Ulysses Pact. Ulysses Pact or a Commitment Pact is when you say, look, if, if I try and do something else, then there's a consequence. Or if I don't do the behavior I want to do, then something bad's going to happen, for example. So what I do, a technique I used about three years ago, I call it the burn or burn technique. So for the longest time, I couldn't go to the gym and exercise. I just hated it. And so I, I couldn't figure out how to, how to go to the gym. And so one of the techniques I used is that every day for the past three years or so now, I wake up and I look at my calendar that's hanging in my closet. And on that calendar, on the, today's date, is stuck with a piece, of, a piece of scotch tape, a $100 bill. And next to my calendar sits a lighter. And so I have two choices every single day. I can either go to the gym and burn some calories or I have to burn the $100 bill. And so I've entered into a commitment pact that if I don't do the thing I want to do, then bad things happen, okay? So this isn't, by by the way, this technique has lots of problems with it, uh, particularly when it comes to failure. And if when people fall off the wagon, sometimes they can fall pretty hard off the wagon. So it does have some problems with it, I, I will warn you. However, it's one tool, it's one arrow in your quiver among many, many things that I'll describe in the book. And I've just given you a taste of about four or five different techniques here that we can do to put distraction in its place. Yeah, that was great. I mean, I, I can see that there's a ton of material to write a solid book there. Thanks. I'll let you know when it comes out. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, on, on that end, it was interesting. You were talking about notifications, turning them off. What about that FOMO, that fear of missing out when you turn off those notifications? Like you're going to miss something that's, you know, life or career altering. Yeah. So I would put that into two different categories. You said life or career altering. When it comes to life, right, when it comes to, oh, what are my friends doing that I'm not partaking in, that has to come down to that internal trigger. If we need to figure out, look, why does this bother you so much? Why do you give a shit about what your you know, high school buddies are doing right now? If it really bothers you that much, it's not about the Instagram, okay? If it really is something that you cannot put away, there's something else going on. There's some kind of sadness. There's some kind of pain that you're not addressing and that you're utilizing Instagram as a crutch 
to get instantaneous relief from. So I hate to tell it to people because I, I know they hate to hear it. It's way more convenient to say, God damn you, Instagram, you're doing this to me. But it's not Instagram that's doing it. There's something else going inside our hearts, inside our minds, that, that if you try and try and try and you really can't stop after all these techniques I've shared with you, there's something else going on. With work, however, it's a different problem. Work is a different problem because we can't just stop with work. Like if you stop you know, checking Instagram, nothing bad's going to happen to you, right? It's all in your head. You're just making it up that it's actually a problem, right? Nothing's going to happen to you. With work, however, that's not true. If you stop checking email, if you stop checking Slack, bad things are going to happen to you. You're, you're going to get fired. And so in those cases, you know, there's things that are bigger than just the individual. So most of what, what I talk about in my next book and what we talked about today is really about what the individual can do. However, you know, individuals operate in certain environments. And one of those environments is the workplace. And so that comes down to culture. You know, technology is the great accelerator. And so if you have a crappy culture where people can't talk about problems, where people can't raise their hand and say, hey, boss, you know, I feel like I'm supposed to be checking email till, you know, midnight every night. Is that normal? Is that like, that doesn't feel like a very healthy way to work. And it's kind of burning me out. Like if you don't have the kind of work environment where people can have that conversation, then there's something else going on. There's a bigger dilemma happening. And, and I'm very sympathetic to people say like, look, my workplace, that's not our culture. But what I want you to know is that that is not endemic to all company cultures, that there are many companies. My favorite example is the company that makes the kind of technology that many people deride, Slack. So many people think that Slack is this super addictive product that chains people to the workplace. But you know what? That only happens at companies with shitty company culture that over-tech use is the symptom, not the sickness. That if you go to Slack, you will see inside company headquarters, they literally write it on their walls in bright pink letters. It says, work hard and go home. The company culture at Slack is that after hours and on weekends, you should not be on Slack. And that company culture has come straight from the CEO, straight from Stuart Butterfield on down. You get chastised. If you are using the product when you're not supposed to, when you're, if you're emailing or online or, well, they don't email, but if you're on Slack when you're, when you're not supposed to be after hours, that is a big company no-no because the company sat down and they figured out, look, this isn't the way we want to live. This isn't, a, this isn't a smart way to do business. And so they changed the company culture so that people can air these type of concerns. And it's something that they have taken to heart. Now, so that's why, you know, the, the things that you can do as an individual are different from what you can do as a company. My hope is that if we change as individuals, if we become more cognizant of the power of distraction and how we want to be more indistractable in our work, in our home lives, then we set an example, right? There's small changes that we can make. We change, we take these steps in our own life. We help our bosses and colleagues see how to be less distracted. And then hopefully we can change our teams and hopefully we can change our companies. And hopefully if I'm not too optimistic here, maybe we can change the world. I don't think that's too optimistic. <laughs> you know, as we, everybody sets out to change the world, right? And as we talk about people building new products, new technologies, any advice you'd give them? In terms of building new technologies? Yeah. You know, the people out there, we have a lot of people listening to Product Love that are creators of technologies, yeah. builders of product. You know, they love building products that hopefully their customers love. So right. any specific advice you'd give them, you know, how to build engaging products without taking it too far? Sure. So I, I think I'll give you a quick two-part test that I put in my book, Hooked, 
There's a section in the book called The Morality of Manipulation. So this is a question I've been thinking about for many, many years now. And I give, I give product makers a two-part test that there's a lot of psychology that you can use to build the kind of product that people want to use. I mean, this stuff works, right? The reason that people are talking so much about these tactics and you know, how many companies are using them to keep us hooked is because they really do work. But what I wanted to, to make sure I put in the book is, is a disclaimer around how to use them ethically. So I give product makers a two-part test. So if you want to use these techniques ethically, and there's a lot, we didn't talk too much about these techniques around trigger, action, reward, investment, but there's a lot more in the book, Hooked. But if you are the kind of person who wants to use these techniques for good, I give you a two-part test. And this two-part test, if you pass, doesn't mean that necessarily you're, you're going to be instantly successful. It also doesn't mean that if you fail, you're not going to be financially successful. It just means that if you want to use these techniques ethically, here's what you have to do. The first test you have to pass is you have to look yourself in the mirror and if you, you have to ask yourself, is what I'm building materially improving people's lives? Okay, is what I'm building materially improving people's lives? And only you can answer that question. It's not for other people to judge you or for you to judge other people. It's really about you asking yourself, is what I'm working on materially improving people's lives? If the answer is yes, terrific. You get to ask the next question, which is, well, let me take a little sidebar here. Do you know, Eric, what the first rule of drug dealing is? Uh, I don't think I do. Why would you, right? But <laughs> that's good that maybe you don't know what the first rule of drug dealing is. I'll tell you what it is. The first rule of drug dealing is never get high on your own supply. Never get high on your own supply. So I want you to break that rule. I want you to break that rule. So I want you to use your product or service. So the first question is, is what I'm working on materially improving people's lives? The second question is, am I the user? The reason I want you to break the first rule of drug dealing to be the user is because if there are any deleterious effects to using the product, you're going to know about it. So I think if you're in that category, if you're the kind of person who is building the kind of product that you believe materially improves people's lives and you're the user, that's the most ethical place to be. It doesn't mean you might not screw up. It doesn't mean that there aren't unintended consequences, right? Paul Varillo said that if you invent the ship, you also invent the shipwreck. There's lots of negative stuff that happens that we can't foresee. However, I think you can use these techniques with a clean conscience because you pass this two-part test. It also, by the way, gives you a tremendous business advantage. As anyone who's built product before knows, it is way harder to build a product for somebody else rather than yourself. Now, we don't always have that luxury. I, I will give you that, right? Sometimes we're building for somebody who is not us. But if you have the opportunity, if you can build for yourself, you're not only in an ethically enviable position, you're also in an enviable business position because you're building for someone you intimately know. And that is, of course, yourself. That's awesome. I love it. So almost final question right now. You know, three words to describe yourself. Question three I words ask. to describe myself. Wow. <laughs> I'm always learning. That's three words. That's great. <laughs> And now, finally, anything else you'd like our listeners to know about? Well, if you, if you want to check out the book, again, it's called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. It's available wherever books are sold. And if you want more of these insights that aren't in the book that I'm still working on or you want to keep up to date with my latest writing, uh, I publish frequently on my blog. It's called nearandfar.com, and near is spelled like my first name, N-I-R. So N-I-R-and-far.com, nearandfar.com. That's awesome. Thanks, Nier. This was great. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. 